You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko Jessica Toku Ingoa, no mai hari mai ki te waia mō tēnei rā. Kia ora and welcome to The Wire for Rahina Monday. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'll be with you for the next hour. I'm also joined in the studio with producer Ezra. How's it going, Ezra? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. What have you got for us today on the show? Today I interview Associate Professor of Law at the University of Auckland, Carrie Leonetti, about the government's proposed gang patch ban. And Te Pāti Māori's Takutai Kemp is unavailable today, but for our regular catch-up with Axe, Simon Court, we discuss the government making weapons, including semi-automatic rifles, more widely available and designating Hamas in its entirety as a terrorist organisation. I also speak to Justice for Palestine co-convener and co-founder of Alternative Jewish Voices, Marilyn Garson, about the government's stance on Hamas and how the media has covered Israel's war in Gaza. He aha ofa karo. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so get in touch. Tuhu patuhi mai, text in on 5395, or wire my rane, give us a call in studio on 309 387 You can catch all of these stories and more by podcast on our website, 95bfm.com forward slash bcasts. It's time for our weekly catch-up with the ACT Party's Simon Court. Last week, the coalition government announced its plans to rewrite Aotearoa's gun legislation. Changes proposed include reintroducing military-style semi-automatic weapons, which were banned shortly after the Christchurch mosque attacks in 2019. With nearly unanimous support from MPs aside from members of the ACT Party, ACT pushed for gun legislation reform as part of negotiations when forming the coalition government. Last week, the government also designated Hamas in its entirety as a terrorist organisation. The government previously only gave this designation to Hamas's military wing. For our weekly catch-up, I spoke to ACT's Simon Court about the considerations behind both of these decisions. So I wanted to first ask you about the government's plans to rewrite the Arms Act. What changes can we expect? Well, the government won't be introducing any new firearms types into the country as part of our review and update to the Arms Act, uh, except for those that are already available to licensed firearms owners under the current laws. We've heard from uh, Labor last week that uh, semi-automatics were banned. They never were. Uh, the 6,600 people are still licensed to have them under the current regime. So we're focused on fixing Labor's patchwork, that mess of firearms law and regulation to create a more stringent and risk management approach, which will enhance public safety and increase compliance with the licensing system. Uh, and that will be a review and replacement of the current Arms Act, which has been led by 
a firearms safety expert, and that's at Minister Nicole McKee. So you have proposed reintroducing those semi-automatic weapons for competitive shooters, and police have advised that making these more widely available could see them end up in the black market. How will you ensure that your legislation ensures community safety and that this does not happen? Well, under Labor, New Zealanders became less safe and firearms-related incidents became more and more common. In that one-year period between May 2022 and May 2023, members... Uh, gang members who are on the national gangs list committed on average 2.8 firearms offences every day. That was under the previous Labor government. What this government will be focused on is making sure that we have a risk-based approach when it comes to licensing people who have a lawful purpose to have firearms. Currently, around 6,600 licensed firearms owners currently are lawfully entitled to possess and use semi-automatic centre-fire rifles, and uh, we're not proposing to introduce any other types of firearms into New Zealand. Uh, But Nicole McKee was a sporting shooter, a successful one, uh, won medals, and I think it would be fair to say that there's a small but important group of New Zealanders who feel that they could and should be trusted to have those firearms that they previously had for uh, sporting events, including uh, competing overseas at all kinds of competitions. Um, but any any changes to legislation will be focused on risk management and certainly be taking the police's views on board as the legislation progresses. Another interest group has expressed concern, that being Muslim New Zealanders, that loosening our gun laws could mean that a tragedy like the mosque attacks of 2019 happen again. How can you reassure our Muslim communities and the people of New Zealand that this will not happen because of your law changes? Well, the Royal Commission and other inquiries identified that the person who committed those atrocious attacks on mosques in Christchurch should never have had a firearms licence. Uh, They were not a fit and proper person, and yet uh, they were issued a licence. Under the proposed changes, we will be focusing on risk management, risk assessment, uh, a much more stringent approach which enhances public safety. And so uh, we would provide assurances to those concerned about firearms ending up in the wrong hands that that is this government's primary focus, making sure firearms don't end up in the wrong hands, and that includes gang members uh, who appear uh, over the past few years to have ready access to pretty much whatever they wanted. The government's also announced that you will be making changes to firearms prohibition orders in an effort to improve public safety. Currently, police can get an urgent warrant when there is suspected gang activity, And under the Search and Surveillance Act, police can also conduct a warrantless search in relation to a firearms offence. So could you explain how the changes you've proposed are different from what was introduced under Labour? Well, it's correct that there are already provisions in the law to uh, intervene when the police identify people who should not have access to firearms. Uh, One of the challenges is... Uh, while, while 
those laws are going part of the way towards solving the problem. Uh, there are other issues where you know, people who are visiting a home, for example, or who are consorting uh, with others who may be licensed firearms owners uh, shouldn't be able to do that um, because of the risks that, that they pose in their communities. So look, I'm not over all the details of that legislation, but I understand that the, the intent is to strengthen it, make it easier for the police to use when they identify people uh, who should be prohibited from being around firearms or having um, having access to them. Uh, and so you know, we'll wait and see what that, uh, what that legislation looks like when it comes out. To move on, the government last week designated Hamas in its entirety as a terrorist organisation. What considerations were behind this decision? Well, uh, Hamas has carried out the most atrocious attack in Israel on October 7. Uh, Prior to that, it appears that they had access to a significant amount of funding and financing coming from their offshore business activities. Uh, They have operations in a number of countries around the Middle East uh, and uh, and, and were able to carry out what on the surface appear to be legitimate business activities while funneling that money into terrorist activities. So it's right and proper that the New Zealand government has joined uh, the United States and others in designating Hamas a terrorist entity so that if New Zealand does detect uh, that uh, there is money flowing to that agent, uh, to, to that terrorist organisation uh, that we can intervene and put a stop to it. Where previously, without having made that designation, um, New Zealand wasn't in a position to take any action. So to clarify, if the government does detect that that aid was not being provided to Hamas's military actions specifically, Hamas also has a government wing which employees, nurses, cleaners and teachers, would you then potentially look at revoking this designation? These are two separate matters. I mean, the fact that a a, a terrorist dictatorship employs people um, is not the same as New Zealand having the power to identify where the terrorist organisation is raising money, and they might be through what appear to be legitimate uh, activities, for example, uh, you know, uh, banking, uh, construction, uh, supply and logistics, freight and transport, uh, where they're carrying out these activities, uh, and and the profits or the revenues from those businesses are going to fund the terrorist organisation and their activities. Uh, that is something that New Zealand has now said we will not allow Hamas to do that uh, or. or, or or if New Zealand knows about it, we'll be able to do something about it, which previously we couldn't. That's quite separate from you know, a terrorist dictatorship employing nurses and doctors. Uh, I mean, uh, we don't have any influence over that. Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters has stated that our government is appalled that hundreds of Palestinians were killed while seeking aid near Gaza City last week, and we just saw a similar attack on Palestinians waiting for flour. Will the government condemn Israel for these actions? Uh, That was truly shocking to see uh, how desperate the people seeking aid were. Uh, I think that if we're going to resolve the situation and New Zealand's going to play its part, what New Zealand should be advocating for very strongly is that Hamas lay down their weapons and release the hostages so that aid can uh, flow into Gaza 
uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, the problem is currently that Hamas has numerous battalions of fighters uh, who are continuing to engage with the Israeli Defence Force uh, in civilian areas using civilians as human shields, uh, and they frankly don't seem to care about the suffering of their own people. Does the New Zealand government, are they aware that Israel is preventing humanitarian aid from entering Gaza or from reaching Palestinians? Is this something that you accept as true? I'm not aware of those reports, but it is certainly true that it is very, very difficult to ensure the safety of aid shipments. I mean, truck drivers are absolutely terrified uh, when they are asked to take uh, aid into Gaza. Uh, if their security can't be guaranteed, then the aid will not flow. No truck driver is going to say, yeah, no worries, I'll jump in the cab after seeing what happened last week. So, Do you uh, see the Netanyahu government in Israel as having any responsibility in creating the conditions that led to any military action from Palestinian resistance groups like Hamas? Are you inferring that somehow uh, Israel caused Hamas to attack them on October 7? I mean, that's, that's outrageous, but I'm assuming you're not. A lot of groups have said that the Israeli government has played a part in creating conditions that led to military action from Hamas. Yeah, that's pretty atrocious victim blaming if that's what they're saying. Would you say that using claims of Hamas are using Palestinians as human shields to justify the killing of Palestinians would also be victim blaming? Well, if you're referring to the way Hamas has located itself amongst civilian populations, uh, they've fired rockets from schools, apparently UN-funded and controlled schools. Uh, they've hidden their hostages that they've t taken back to Gaza uh, in bunkers under hospitals. Uh, they have their main communication centres, um, you know, IT systems uh, located under large hospitals. I mean... The, the, these, this is all information that has come out since the Israeli Defence Force entered Gaza. So there's no question that Hamas uh, is hiding amongst the civilian population and by their actions and deeds uh, don't seem to really care about the fate of the civilians they're hiding amongst. Uh, if they really cared what they, what they could do if they're seeking a ceasefire and restoration of services and, and a flow of food to Gaza... Uh, they could put down their weapons and release the hostages, and I'm sure they would find uh, a, a way um, to do that, um, and you know, peace could return in some form, and an enduring solution could be found. Uh, that really does lie with Hamas, who hold over 100 people still, uh, men, you know, men and women, and some babies, in fact, uh, in bunkers and tunnels underneath Gaza. Would the government ever consider declaring the Israeli Defence Force as a terrorist organisation? Well, yeah, that doesn't sound uh, like there'd be any reason to do that. I mean, the Defence Force of Israel is operating as best as they can, they would say, within the uh, international laws of armed conflict. I mean, New Zealand's role here has to be helpful. And if that means uh, helping by pointing out you know, essentially where aid can be delivered, uh, what kind of conditions 
would be required for an enduring ceasefire, uh, that would be New Zealand's role, a performative act like de you know, declaring a, a nation state, you know, a, a democracy, um, a terrorist entity, extremely unhelpful. And, and there's, no, there's no sense that, um, that that's a policy that would be seriously considered. And just lastly, the government has imposed travel bans against some Israeli settlers who committed violent acts against Palestinians in the West Bank. Does the government have any further plans to sanction Israeli settlers or Israeli military actions? Look, it's good that uh, the New Zealand government has followed the lead of the United States in identifying individuals who have carried out crimes. It's also important to note that Israel itself takes uh, these crimes uh, that those settlers are accused of having carried out very seriously, and they are subject to the full force of the law in Israel. Uh, but you know, when we think about how to solve this problem, this is a problem for Israel and its neighbours to solve. Uh, it's not up to New Zealand to um, be taking um, unilateral action, uh, which is highly unlikely to be helpful and more likely to end up that New Zealand actually becomes a less trusted partner for those um, involved in the peace process. So yeah, I think New Zealand is treading a careful um, and thoughtful course in terms of its international diplomatic role right now. And uh, you know, I think we can only hope that the situation resolves itself with the release of the remaining hostages who are still alive uh, and uh, and a ceasefire as soon as that's possible. But the government at this stage does not have any plans to condemn the Israeli Defence Forces actions specifically in relation to attacks on Palestinians waiting for aid? I'm not aware of any New Zealand government intention to do that, uh, but I'm also uh, not familiar because I have the infrastructure and resource management portfolios of all of those discussions. What's quite clear is that when delivering aid into Gaza, it is very, very difficult to ensure the security of those aid convoys, uh, given the huge pressure from people uh, who are hungry and who are desperate to get hold of some of that aid. So um, are you insinuating that that's the people waiting for aid would be violent? Is that what you're insinuating? Well, what we've seen, um, there's a number of uh, cases where you know, aid convoys have been attacked when uh, Hamas's own police fired on crowds. Uh, so you know, we can see the desperation that these people uh, are in. So look, that's a problem for whoever's delivering aid to Gaza, and I'm sure that you know, the New Zealand government, in its wisdom, uh, will be offering to assist in any way it can and diplomatically, but it's not a problem that New Zealand can solve from here. That was Axe Simon Court on gun laws and Israel's war in Gaza. And we'll be right back after this short break. Keep it on the beat. That was Simon Court from the Axe Party. 95 BFM presents the beloved Cross Street Music Festival happening March 9, 2024. Back and bigger than ever before. Featuring some of Aotearoa's finest live music. The summer street party you can't miss. Featuring Princess Chelsea, Mirror Ritual, Deep State, Plus Just Added, Kidu Kahlo, Balu Brigada, Jeff Ong, Takura Huia, Eli Chico. Plus more surprise acts on the street popping up from our K Road community. Cross Street Music Festival, Saturday, March 9th. Get your tickets at crossstreetmusicfestival.co.nz. Happy beer spot to you. 
Happy beer spot to me. Happy beer spot to the beer spot. Happy beer spot to us. Grab your mates and hit the beer spot for their birthday. With 40 delicious beersies on tap, plus a pale ale birthday brew made especially for the occasion. With six locations Auckland-wide, the Beer Spot is your tappy place. For opening hours and to find out more, head to thebearspot.co.nz. Sorry, no goths. Excuse me? Yeah, piss off. Maybe without those sunnies you could read the bloody sign. No goths? This is cruel and unusual. Not as cruel and unusual as that beautiful velvet cape. Now get out of my sight, Nosferatu. I'm a human being. It's hard out there for a goth, but everyone's welcome on Pennies 1 to 4. A heady mix of the sounds of now and the shimmering hits from our alternative past. The 1 to 4 with Penny, every Monday only on 95 BFM. The Wire. Welcome back. You're listening to The Wire on 95BFM. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of our pieces today. Text in on 5395. Following the government designating Hamas in its entirety as a terrorist organization last week, I spoke to representatives of the Jewish and Palestinian communities here in Aotearoa. First, I spoke to Justice for Palestine co-convener Samira Zaiton about their calls for the government to condemn Israel for its actions in Gaza. The government has designated Hamas in its entirety as a terrorist organisation. What is your reaction to this? Really devastated. The first thing that I think about is that it's racist. It's racist and it's hypocritical. So those are the first two things, I guess, because what we're saying is that to designate Hamas in all of its entirety is all of its government infrastructure. It is its Ministry of Health. Everyone who works for the Ministry of Health, everyone who writes the names of the people who have been killed by what I would consider the terrorist entity, which is the Israeli government, are now designated as terrorists themselves. It's teachers, it's nurses, it's cleaners, it's rubbish truck drivers. It's just everyone. And I guess the other part of that is the impact that it's going to have in Aotearoa as well. For myself personally, as a Palestinian, as an Arab, I've grown up my whole life with people calling me a terrorist as as either an offhanded joke or as casual racism or as really serious racism. Um, and I really fear that that is going to exacerbate the quote of terrorism and of racism that we already see impacting our young people in Aotearoa. What do you think might have left our government to make this decision now, especially at a time where we've just seen 30,000 people in Gaza have been killed? I think that actually what it comes down to is our New Zealand government not having a backbone because what we can see is that all of the other uh, partners in the Five Eyes Alliance um, have designated Hamas as a terrorist entity. Um, So it's 
from what I from what I understand, it's the New Zealand government not having a backbone and not having any critical thinking into the impacts and the complications of what this is, and also being extremely blind to the real terror that is going on, which is thirty thousand Palestinians being killed. And you know, they did say something about that there's going to be a couple of travel bans on some Israeli settlers in the West Bank because of the reason of their violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. What about the violence of Israeli army soldiers who have caused a lot of violence and been a part of the genocide against the Palestinians? How do you feel about how media here in Aotearoa, as well as politicians, have portrayed Israel's war in Gaza? It is shocking and it's disappointing the way that Western media, including in Aotearoa, have portrayed the genocide that is happening and the reality that is happening in Palestine. Um, It is, a lot of it has come from, you know, if you're looking back at some of the claims that Israel had made at the beginning of beheaded babies, of mass rapes, of children being bound by barbed wire and burned, those are things that, you know, the United um, States President Joe Biden uh, has talked publicly about, which was completely unsubstantiated claim. The New York Times wrote about it. The Washington Post wrote about it. It was on the front page everywhere, including in Aotearoa media as well. Now, the issue with that is that there is no fact-checking, there is no investigation, and this isn't new for what happens when we're looking at the bias between Israel and Palestine, because when you're looking at what's happening in Palestine, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of videos and evidence of watching people being killed. We don't see that when it comes to um, needing the evidence from the other side. And often in those cases, those claims are put forward by Israel. And once the dust settles, then they will often come out and say, oh, actually, that was that was a lie, or that wasn't true, or, yeah, that was us who did that. Um, So it's not surprising, but it's extremely disappointing, and I think that our media must do better. We've seen that since the International Court of Justice ruling that Israel must take actions to prevent genocide and ensure that humanitarian aid reaches Gaza, not only that more than 100 Palestinians were killed while trying to get food after Israeli soldiers shot at them, but also we've seen reports that there has been less aid entering Gaza. What responsibility does our government have to condemn this and to ensure that Israel is meeting the obligations of the International Court of Justice? We have a big responsibility and a big part to play. Um, we are a part of the United Nations. We are part of um, the World Court, the International Court of Justice. Um, we've been part of cases, in um, historic cases through history of other um, 
issues uh, where we have seen ourselves as um, impactful players that can be honest brokers in hard situations. Now, we also have uh, an obligation to uphold international humanitarian law, and we are often on this high horse of historical victories that we've seen ourselves be a part of, such as women being the first um, to vote in the world, of uh, the Springbok tour and our um, rejection of apartheid in South Africa, of being a nuclear-free zone. And quite frankly, I think that we need to get off that high horse if we're not going to have a principled foreign policy approach that is based in human rights and upholding that international law. Uh, Because otherwise, all of our institutions that we rely on have no standing. Uh, And it's really, really poor behaviour from our government today. We've seen many New Zealanders including Palestinian New Zealanders, take to the streets in protest and call on our government to do more. Can you speak to what this solidarity and this protest action has looked like recently here in Aotearoa? The solidarity movement in Aotearoa that has been building in Tautoko, Palestine and Palestinians and human rights has been the most profound thing that that we've seen, it has been relentless um, and people are really hurting from it. Um, But we keep going and it's one of the most beautiful things because we're understanding that it's not just about Palestine, this is about our humanity, it's about our collective humanity, it's about making sure that the role that we play is on the right side of history. It's about putting pressure on our government. It's about uh, bringing people onto the waka and our journey for justice. Uh, And I think that people who are part of our rallies and our marches and posting on social media and writing to their MPs should be really proud of themselves for, for being a part of this. But when things like Hamas getting designated as a terrorist entity or the extremely, extremely slow um, response for the government to finally call for a ceasefire or the dwindling uh, UNRWA funds makes it feel sometimes really hopeless. But it can't be because apartheid falls, imperialist regimes fall, fascism falls, and the Zionist regime will fall as well if we keep going. Um, and building that solidarity. So we're just going to keep on keeping on with the knowledge that we will be on the right side of history, we will win, and that one day Palestine will be free and we will have justice because we have this really, really rich understanding now of what it means when we say we're not free until we're all free. That was Justice for Palestine co-convener Samira Zaiton speaking. I also spoke to the co-founder of Alternative Jewish Voices, Marilyn Garson, about her reaction to the government's decision and concerns about misinformation surrounding what is happening in Gaza and the occupied West Bank.
being spread here in New Zealand. And please note, when Marilyn discusses Simon Court's interview on 95BFM, she is referencing my interview with him, which aired last week. I think it's most unfortunate. And, and I want to preface my answer a bit by saying that I have lived under Hamas, and I have written about their human rights abuses within the context of occupation and blockade. In, in their conduct of an armed resistance, I have written that I regard Hamas not as an expression of hopeful liberation, but of the failure of hope, as every other channel has been denied to people behind a blockade. So my objection is not particularly about Hamas itself. My objection is that these decisions don't address the context of October 7th. Within that context, Gaza has always been silenced by its diplomatic exclusion. It, it has no voice, and this decision dictates that the only voice for Palestinians will be the Western-supported 88-year-old Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. So our government is acquiescing to choose Palestinians' representative. To put that within a bigger frame, they would say the military actions that we see are symptoms of a political struggle for Palestinian self-determination. And yesterday's decision does not touch the cause, the political struggle. And then the clock, the clock didn't stop on October 7th. Look at our reactions to everything that has happened. We have 1,200 Israelis killed and 240 held hostage, and for that we designate all of Hamas as a terrorist entity. We have 400 West Bankers killed and 7,000 detained. For that, a dozen or so individual settlers can't come to visit Queenstown, which even Luxon admits was not likely to happen. We have 30,000 Gazans killed, half the buildings in the Gaza Strip ruined. We say we would like a ceasefire, please, but our normal relations with Israel are not in any way disrupted. I feel like these proportions are, are terribly wrong. We hear the statements of genocidal intent, and we know who is responsible for 30,000 deaths in Gaza, but we're doing nothing. We know that settler violence in the West Bank is effectively state violence, and the state detained these 7,000 people. But we don't in any way touch that authority structure. We're leaving Israel's leadership untouched, including the leadership of the settlers, although they are responsible for the overwhelming preponderance of death and harm. So if I can just restate that in terms of human rights, if we put people, if we put lives and rights at the heart of our thinking, we would condemn everyone who is using undue or illegal violence to achieve political ends. We would condemn the people who committed crimes on October 7th, the settler gangs, at least some units of the IDF, and I would say the Israeli cabinet and strategists who have chosen to fight this way. By responding only to October 7th, I think we are 
acting in the sphere of politics, not solutions. Aotearoa and other Western countries have had Hamas's military wing designated as a terrorist organization for many years. For those who might not know, can you explain how Hamas's political and military wings differ, and do you think this is a necessary distinction to be making? I think uh, what people need to understand is that Hamas is both a force for armed resistance, a set of fighters, and a government. Hamas was elected in 2006 as the government of the Gaza Strip, and there was always a joke while I lived there that if they were to hold new elections, Hamas would win in the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority would win in Gaza because everyone was so disaffected by the Palestinian leadership. What they're doing by designating all of Hamas as a terrorist entity, they are rendering as terrorists also Gaza's government. Hamas employs teachers, rubbish collectors, bureaucrats. They have families. What is their status now? They worked for the government. Who else could employ a teacher? They are, they are rendering Gaza as an ungoverned space. And that has serious repercussions for recovery, and that has immediate repercussions for tens of thousands of people and their relatives. I think it's just creating a bigger hole in the fabric. Do you believe our government should designate the IDF as a terrorist organization, or is there a better way for us to condemn Israel's actions? I think there are many ways to condemn Israel's actions. Should they be rendered as terrorists? My request would simply be that they act consistently across the sphere of violent, uh, the perpetrators of violence. Is there another way? Yes. Israel is very dependent on functioning as a normal member of the international system. And that gives us all kinds of diplomatic economic tools. We can sanction. We can send the ambassador home. We can say we are not treating you normally until you respect the most basic human rights of everyone over whom you have power. There's a whole set of economic and treaty-related steps that we can and should take. There have been some concerns raised that pro-Israel propaganda has been spread through New Zealand media and by politicians here in Aotearoa. Is this something you're concerned about at all? I feel like we have brought a whole set of racialized assumptions to the whole conversation. You know, as with on this issue and as with others, it's like Israel is held to a different standard. Israel is absolved of its responsibilities, while Palestinians begin with a kind of suspicion. And, you know, I've, I've heard it, for example, in your interview this week with Simon Court with the ACT Party. He said Israel faces this terrible dilemma of releasing prisoners who are heinous terrorists and murderers in exchange for its civilian hostages. So there's a perfect example. Who are these Palestinians held in custody? Well, 7,000 of them are new detainees since October 7th. 
Thousands of them are children in military jails. Israel arrests five, six, seven hundred children every year. It is just a racialized trope to assume that Palestinians who are in military custody must therefore be heinous terrorists. To save that thing on level ground, I would say that civilian hostages should be released unconditionally because it's a war crime to hold them. Palestinian prisoners who are confined without due process, children, those in preventative detention, should also be released without precondition. But that is not the way that we've been hearing it. So I think we are bringing really racialized rationales to this issue. Alternative Jewish voices have spoken out about the harmful conflation of Judaism and Zionism. Do you feel that your calls have been heard, particularly here in Aotearoa? <laughs> in, in some corners, yes. People are learning, um, and a number of Jews are unlearning the conditioning that we bring. But I still hear far too often the confusion of the two words as if being being a Jew must indicate being a Zionist, as if this ideology is an essential part of being Jewish. It's not. It's a nationalism that a number of Jews certainly endorse, but it's not a part of our religion. And that basic public education just needs to go on and on. We are not there yet. Despite this, we've seen many New Zealanders, including Jewish New Zealanders, showing up in solidarity with Palestinians. Can you speak to what the solidarity and advocacy has looked like here in Aotearoa? Well, a simple way to to note it is that when we, <clears throat> on October 7th, <clears throat> excuse me, on October 7th, we were a little collective of around a dozen people. And now having joined forces with a revived Dainu, we are becoming a membership group with 70 plus members. 200 or so Jews have signed an open letter calling on our institutions to speak differently. We are approached at rally after rally by additional Jews saying, can we stand with you? We now need, we feel a need to be identified with the humanism, with the solidarity that would protect Palestinians from what's happening at the moment. We experience it both as a really difficult tear in the fabric of our own community, and we experience it as the opening up of a space beyond Zionism, where we are beginning to build new community. That's exciting. Uh, I've been thinking about the Human Rights Commission, which has written about the need for us to find our own coexistence without securitizing Muslim identity in particular. So I feel like yesterday was a big setback. And then this morning, we're hearing the headlines that 100-plus Palestinians have been killed looking for food in the north of Gaza. And what we hear in the news is Israel acknowledging that it shot some of them, but others They say they didn't shoot. That's the wrong headline. The headline is Gazans are being 
starved, I think we need to start looking at the way we hear these stories and bringing level-headed assumptions about both peoples to the stories that we hear. That was Justice for Palestine co-convener Samira Zaiton and co-founder of Alternative Jewish Voices Marilyn Garson on New Zealand's response to Israel's war on Gaza. Irirangi Paul, Radio Bosom. The Wire. And we'll be right back after this short break. Keep it on the beat. Get savings all year round with Samsung's exclusive student offer. Score up to 20% off the retail price on the latest Samsung mobile devices and accessories. Register now and get an additional 10% off your first purchase. Plus, shop before March 25 to go in the draw to win one of three pairs of Galaxy Buds 2 Pro. Get sussed for 2024. All you need is an email address ending with .ac.nz. Go to samsung.com. Terms and conditions apply. Join Motat in celebrating Pacifica Festival with Pacifica Vibes, March 9 and 10. Get free entry into Motat's Great North Road location and enjoy Pacific dance and music, coconut shaving, delicious food. Plus, delight in movie screenings of Pacific short films and documentaries. Motat, supporting and celebrating Pacifica Festival again for 2024. March 9 and 10. Find out more at motat.nz. A group of emperor penguins huddled close, moving together in synchronized waves. This is Universal Harmony. Radiating togetherness with positive energy. This is Universal Harmony. As wholesome as fresh sliced sourdough and as empowering as winning a prize at school assembly. This is Universal Harmony. Tuesday nights from 10 till midnight are reserved for Universal Harmony with Dr. Snickers. Only on 95BFM. Putting the bubble back in your moe. That's Universal Harmony. It upsets me so much that there's still people that we need to convince this is a real fucking thing. (laughs) Real friggin' thing. The Wire. Welcome back to The Wire. The government's proposed gang patch bill has drawn significant attention as it progresses through the legislative process. If passed, the contentious policy would ban gang patches in public spaces and provide police with more powers to disperse the congregation of gang members. Today, I chatted to Associate Professor of Law at the University of Auckland, Carrie Leonetti, about the legality, enforceability and potential discriminatory implications of this bill. Why do you think the government is so interested in this gang patch ban? So, I, I do think we have a significant problem with gang membership and gang-related crime in mm. New Zealand. From what I can tell from the public descriptions of the legislation, because the government hasn't actually revealed the legislative language yet, the bill, but from their descriptions, it appears that they're modeling the law that they're proposing here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, off a law that was passed in Western Australia two or three years ago. Um, So it seems they're just sort of following the lead of the Western Australian government. How has such a band worked out previously, both domestically and overseas? Yeah, so, um, I mean, in terms of the Western Australian law, it's probably too soon to know if it has had any significant impact on gang membership or gang-related harm. I mean, as far as I know, there are no data to suggest it has. After being in place for about two years now, 
I think there's no reason to believe it's decreased gang membership and there's no reason to believe it's decreased gang-related crime. What it has done, at least in Western Australia, is actually lead to a series of kind of high-profile confrontations between gang leaders and members of the Australian, Western Australian government. A lot of the gangs in Western Australia have actually sort of They've created things like gang insignia that actually mock the politicians who voted for the law in Western Australia. Like there's been a kind of carnival atmosphere to some of these public protests. So the gangs have kind of showed up on mass to protest the anti-insignia part of the law, and then the government has cracked down on them for violating the anti-insignia part of the law. And it's beginning to take on, I think, a bit of a farcical quality. I mean, there have been hundreds and hundreds of arrests under the anti-insignia part of the law, but for people purposely wearing insignia to protest the anti-insignia part of the law. So not only is there no evidence that this law in Western Australia has worked to reduce gang membership or gang-related harm, it actually seems to be driving, if anything, additional like recruiting and protest activity by the gangs. And this is all part of a much older genre. I mean, I'm, I'm a, an American who grew up in the 1980s, so this stuff all started at least back in the United States with color bands. You couldn't wear red, yellow, or blue in certain parts of town. Um, because those colors were associated with street gangs. And I have never seen any evidence that any of these anti-insignia, anti-consorting, sort of dispersal-type laws affect gang membership or affect gang-related harm. Do you anticipate potential human rights challenges to this proposed ban in court? Should it go through? Yeah, I do, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, the anti-insignia part of the law is obviously a, a restriction of people's freedom of expression. The dispersal orders and the anti-consorting orders are significant restrictions on people's freedom of movement, freedom of association. And if there were evidence that these laws were effective, if they actually had a significant impact on gang membership or gang-related crime, um, that might be a different conversation. But in the absence of any evidence that they're actually going to do any sort of public health good or they're going to reduce public harm, I would think there's a, there are significant human rights considerations. Police telling people they have to go home, courts telling people they can't associate with one another. And I think it's particularly a concern here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because a lot of the gangs in Aotearoa, New Zealand tend to involve families, like brothers or fathers and sons or cousins who are part of the same gang. Mm. And so, you know, you're, you're not just talking about dispersing a bunch of young men. You're actually talking about telling fathers and sons they can't be in the same place at the same time. Or an anti-consorting order might mean that family members, even people who live together, are not allowed to, you know, have contact for seven days. And and I think there are significant human rights concerns to that. Our gangs, like gangs in most of the world, also have a really heavy ethnic component, right? I mean, most gangs have sort of a designated ethnicity to the gang. I have real concerns about the police dispersing, for instance, a young group of Maori men, of Tane Maori, on the theory that they're all members of a Maori gang, when maybe some of them aren't. I mean, I'm, I'm just worried about the sort of profile aspect of this. Mm. Um, I mean, like I said, I grew up with these sort of anti-color bands when I was a kid. But as a little white girl, nobody was ever going to arrest me or order me to go home if I went out in a red dress. I mean, nobody was ever going to think I was a blood because it's an African-American street gang and it's entirely male. Mm. And I think we're sort of pretending that's not true. We're pretending that, that part of what goes into identifying gang members isn't just insignia, it's ethnicity. And so I get really concerned about the sort of guilt by association aspects of ordering a group of young brown men to disperse. I'm pretty sure if I put on ironic gang insignia to express my 
I don't know, support of the gang's right to wear their insignia, I'm much less likely. I mean, I can't imagine they'd order me to disperse. I can't imagine I'd be subject to an anti-consorting law. So I think that's part of what makes me nervous, too, is when we go to define what constitutes gang insignia, is it going to apply the same to everyone? Or are only people who look a certain way wearing insignia associated with a gang actually going to be the target of some of these things like dispersal orders or, or charged for wearing the insignia in public? So I even think that just sort of the ethnicity aspects of this make me really nervous about how this law is going to work in practice. Because certainly in other jurisdictions, we see a sort of ethnic profiling that also goes along with gang insignia profiling. Now, the government hasn't defined insignia yet. I mean, if it's just going to be patches, like, you know, mongrel mob in the back of a leather jacket, that might be less concerning. But in most other places, it's gang hand gestures, it's tattoos. I mean, for sure in Western Australia, this has involved tattoos, including facial tattoos. And when gang members have asked the government, what am I supposed to do if I have a gang-affiliated tattoo on my face? They've basically said, wear face makeup, wear a balaclava, or stay home. And, and I think that's a really unrealistic response to what happens when people have things like tattoos that might be associated with a gang, but they might have other meanings as well. I just find it hard to believe that ethnicity is not going to become part of policing that, about whose tattoos does and doesn't count as a gang tattoo. Mm. Probably will depend very much on the ethnicity of the person with the tattoo. Considering those valid concerns, Professor, do you think that this proposed ban could ever be effectively enforced without violating human rights? I mean, it will depend on how narrowly they define gang insignia. But I also think it just it depends on enforcement. So one of the things that laws like this do is they give police and prosecutors an enormous amount of discretion. I mean, in some ways, that's the purpose, right? We want to give the police a tool they can invoke. If there are a bunch of gang members like roaring around the city on motorcycles and they're scaring people, we want the police to have sort of an extra tool they can use to do something about that. But when you give the police these really sweeping discretionary tools, what we tend to see in the criminal justice system is discriminatory enforcement. So, I mean, I would just predict that five years out, if you look at the ethnicity of people who have been ordered to disperse or who have been arrested for gang insignia, it's not going to be a cross-section of society. It may not even be a cross-section of gang membership. Because when the police get to sort of have these tools they can use or not use at their discretion, they tend to use them in a discriminatory way. Not necessarily on purpose, but because of just unconscious biases and sort of implicit associations and stereotypes that we carry. Like when I say gang member, everybody listening to this will get an image in their mind of what I mean, and it's not a race-neutral image. And so I just worry when the police have these sweeping tools at their disposal that what we'll see in practice is that this will, in fact, target a particular population. And again, I don't think on purpose. It's just any given officer out on patrol who invokes their dispersal powers or who arrests people for gang insignia, they're going to be driven by those subconscious stereotypes that we all carry. And I think you'll likely see discriminatory enforcement. So that's like one of the big concerns I have is five years out, are the data going to show that this was used predominantly against Maori, predominantly against Pacifica, disproportionately even to gang membership. And and I'd be surprised if it weren't just because that tends always to be what happens in the criminal justice system when you leave an enormous amount of discretion to police and prosecutors about mm. who you target or don't target with an enforcement tool. That was Associate Professor Carrie Leonetti on the government's proposed gang patch ban. That was The Wire. 
ko ira te hotaka katoa mō tēnei wiki ne te mihi ki a koutou katoa i kororo mai ki o mō tēnei rā. That's a wrap on The Wire for Monday. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today, ex-Simon Court, Justice for Palestine co-convener Samira Zaitun, Alternative Jewish Voices co-founder Marilyn Garson and Associate Professor Carrie Leonetti. Nira hoki te mihi ki a i whakarongo ana. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to 95BFM. Next up is The Wonder Four with Penny. was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.